Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of alternative rock. It's the History of Alt Rock series. So every Sunday you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of alt-rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week, now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. Before we go any further with our history of alt-rock, a lesson in cosmology is in order. Sometime around 16 billion years ago, there was this infinitely dense and infinitely tiny thing called a singularity. Don't ask where it came from or who made it. That's just asking for trouble. The best anyone can tell is that one day, well, there weren't days back then because time didn't exist. And again, let's just not go there. This thing just exploded. And astronomers called this the Big Bang. This explosion moved outward in all directions, stretching space, well, creating space, but that makes the brain hurt, And then it started to cool off, and then it got lumpy and clumpy, and eventually coalesced into stars, planets, people, and goats. Everything that we see and everything that we perceive is the result of that Big Bang. So, sorry creationists, the world isn't flat either. Don't send me emails. I don't care. Now it's time for a wild but very apt analogy. If we look at the punk rock of the middle 1970s, we can think of this as a musical Big Bang. The ideas and the attitudes it generated spread out in all directions and eventually began to coalesce into new ideas and attitudes. They were all made up of the same basic elements, but they combined to form totally new life forms. And there were probably goats involved somewhere too. This is the story of some of those new life forms. It's chapter seven of the complete history of alt rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Joy Division and a version of Transmission recorded at the BBC on January 31st, 1979. And part of the reason I chose that song to start the show, other than the fact that it's one of my all-time favorites, is because it came from a record whose artwork featured the radio telescope signature of a dying star. So it fits in nicely with that cosmology analogy I started with a few minutes ago. Hello again, I'm Ellen Cross, and we're up to Chapter 7 in our comprehensive history of what we now call alt-rock. Chapter 6 was all about the burnout of the original punk rock sounds and the rise of whatever came after. 
In North America, these bands and these sounds were marketed as New Wave, the less angry, less violent, less political, and more well-behaved cousin of punk rock. And it worked very well, too. Lots of bands became famous, and record labels got rich. However, things were different on the other side of the Atlantic. The original British punk scene burned very bright and very loud for less than three years. And by the middle of 1979, the Sex Pistols had broken up, and there was a growing backlash against the other original punks. And the idea of wearing clothes with safety pins and swastikas seemed quaint and, finally, even a little offensive. Meanwhile, a new class of group began to arise. If punk's central message was, screw you, these new groups had a different outlook. They looked at the British Empire crumbling around them and decided that the punk message was wrong. They got it backwards. It wasn't screw you. It was, we're screwed. And just like the punks thought that the hippies had failed to change with their peace and love approach, this new breed of groups believed that the punks had failed with theirs. And that kind of made sense. And so did this. Everyone from the punk days was a few years older. Priorities and values had changed. Some of the amateur musicians who got into music because of punk were now pretty good at their instruments. Snarling lyrics over two or three chords just didn't cut it anymore. Music had moved on, just as it always had done. But what do you call this offspring of punk? See, in Britain, no one really took to the label New Wave. That seemed too glossy and superficial. And besides, the mood in Britain was different. The economy was still in the crapper, everybody was going on strike, and youth employment remained very, very high. This new music was unlike anything that had come before it. It seemed more complex and experimental, not necessarily complicated when it came to playing it, but certainly unusual in its inspiration, its tensions, its construction, its composition, and its execution. It was definitely avant-garde, but you couldn't call it that. That was way too pretentious. Postmodern? No, same thing. In the end, one phrase and one word established themselves as memes. The first was post-punk. It was a catch-all phrase for the music that came out of the original punk scene, but didn't sound like punk. The word that came a little later was indie. And we will come back to that word, indie, a little later. But even with all these evolutionary changes, one thing remained. This idea that if you wanted to make music, then you should be able to make the music you want however you choose to make it. Now, this meant that even if you were inspired by the Sex Pistols, you didn't necessarily have to sound like the Sex Pistols. Joy Division only came together because they, and their future manager and their future label boss, were part of a tiny audience who saw the Sex Pistols play in Manchester earlier in their career. It was the infamous Lesser Free Trade Hall show, June 4th, 1976. After that show, the Joy Division guys bought a guitar for 35 pounds. They didn't have enough for an amp, so they figured a way to run a wire through the turntable pickup of Grandma's old console stereo. That was how they conducted their first rehearsal. Joy Division's music was dark and cold and threatening. In the old days, the village shaman would have said that singer Ian Curtis was possessed, judging by his jerky ways of dancing. And in fact, he was possessed. He was suffering from the twin demons of drug abuse and epilepsy. His lyrics were paranoid and desperate, which went perfectly with the minimalist music. And with the addition of producer Martin Hannett, who was a crazy dude all on his own, Joy Division created a niche all their own in the post-punk world. 
And lo, it was good. Joy Division was also in the right place at the right time. Manchester, their hometown, was in big trouble. The mills had all shut down. What was left was polluted and full of crime. Young people couldn't find work. And to make matters even worse, it was very hot during the summer of 1978. That was the year Joy Division really broke out. See, no one had air conditioning. And all over the city, the sewer system, this centuries-old sewer system was crumbling. The place smelled bad. So no wonder Joy Division found an audience. They recorded for Factory Records, one of the many independent labels that sprung up in the wake of punk. And there were dozens and dozens of labels like them. There was Stiff and Rough Trade and Island and Mute, Cherry Red, Fast Product, and so many more. And they all competed to sign the newest and the coolest. These labels were small and nimble and able to pick up on the latest sounds and trends very quickly. For example, a guy named Chris Perry founded a company called Fiction. He found another group that specialized in paranoid minimalism. They were called The Cure. The Cure from 1979. They were formed just outside of London at roughly the same time as Joy Division. And just like Joy Division, they were also pretty amateurish at playing their instruments, at least at first. And although Robert Smith's unselfconscious, quirky singing voice was not appreciated by everyone, at least at first, it added to the increasing variety of voices that were being heard. You know, if it was okay for Robert. Here's a great example of that. In 1977, a 15-year-old wannabe singer who called herself Ari Up decided that she wanted to be a musician of this extreme variety. She was a pretty wild kid, and maybe it had something to do with the fact that her mother was the heiress to a giant German publishing fortune. But mom was actually a scenester herself. All kinds of people were always coming around the house. One night it might be members of The Clash, and the next night it might be the singer from some big prog rock band. Ari developed a taste for reggae, and this is more radical than it sounds right now. See, today, reggae and ska, it's everywhere, right? Not so in 1977. But that was changing thanks to the political and economic situation in Jamaica. See, many Jamaicans were taking advantage of a soon-to-be-eliminated immigration law for citizens of the Commonwealth. They escaped to Britain, where there were jobs, or at least more jobs than there were in Jamaica. See, the UK was still suffering a certain amount of post-war labor shortages, and these immigrants became part of the British working class. And that led to an inevitable mixing of cultures. And of music, of course. Although Ari and her three friends couldn't play a note on whatever instruments they could borrow, they didn't care. They were beyond horrible at first. But again, that was overlooked. At least they had the guts. And an all-female band? Well, that's just crazy. The Slits from 1979. Punk E, yes. Punk Rock, no. But yet something like The Slits could not have happened had there not been punk rock in the first place. Everyone was being encouraged to do whatever they wanted to do. The two and three chord angry punk song was done. So let's see what we can build on beyond that. By the summer of 1979, punk was over, in its original mid-decade form anyway. If the remaining groups wanted to survive, they needed to evolve. 
and no one knew this more than The Clash. After a couple of fierce punk rock records, The Clash knew that they had to move things forward or die like the majority of their peers. But like the teenagers in the slits, they were open to all kinds of new ideas, especially the new reggae sounds that were being played out of the windows of the apartments where the new immigrants lived. The Clash shared the streets with Britain's newest citizens, and they dug what they heard. Listening to reggae led to ska. That created a new appreciation for the blues. R&B? Interesting. Soul had, uh, well, soul. And rockabilly could be upgraded, couldn't it? Absolutely. So the Clash thought, look, we can do anything. We can throw away the old punk dogmas, inject them with these new ideas, and this will just make our messages about racism and drug abuse and corrupt cops and unemployment even more powerful. The result was a third album that was unlike anything anyone could have ever expected out of that whole punk rock stew. The record was called London Calling. You can crush us, you can bruise us, but you'll have to answer too. The best example of how dub and reggae became part of the punk rock DNA. The song is Guns of Brixton, and it was released on December 14, 1979. That was part of The Clash's London Calling album, one of the greatest rock records of all time. Meanwhile, in the industrial city of Coventry, something similar was happening. Coventry had become home to many Jamaican immigrants in their music, which was now being called Blue Beat. In Coventry, Blue Beat existed alongside several other genres, Northern Soul, R&B, Reggae, as well as some of the music of the British youth movements, the Mods, the Rockers, the Teddy Boys, and of course, the Punk Rockers. Jerry Dammers was born in India and the ex-hippie son of a missionary minister. He was a huge fan of all this music that he was hearing in the street. He was also very much into the freedom of expression that came with the punk movement of the 1970s. See, music was his way of rebelling against Minister Dad, and it also helped push back against the bleak working-class existence of Coventry. Now, reggae was too slow for the energy that Jerry wanted to produce, so he defaulted to reggae's ancestor, ska. Ska was born in Jamaica in the late 1940s and came into its own by the late 1950s. It had a much more choppy beat. In that way, it was kind of like punk, but different. It could be made angry or happy, and it was just great for dancing. Jerry loved ska, and he wanted to pursue this. One of the things he did was invent a uniform. It was a cross between a West Indian rude boy, a British skinhead, and a British mod. This meant suits, pork pie hats, dark glasses, and crisp white shirts and neat ties. Jerry's band eventually became known as The Specials. If the first wave of ska began in Jamaica 30 years earlier, the release of the first special single marked the beginning of ska's second wave. And, appropriately, it all started with an actual sample from a song written by a first wave ska master named Prince Buster. The track is Gangsters. In March 1979, the Specials borrowed 700 pounds from family and friends to form an independent record label that Jerry Dammers called Two-Tone. This was after the black and white suits worn by mods and skinheads in the 60s and after the peaceful, multiracial makeup of the band. Two-Tone ended up having a pretty good run over the next few years as ska became one of the biggest trends in post-punk Britain. 
Other groups followed. The Selector, Madness, The Beat. It was infectious and fun and spread all the right messages. But not everyone was feeling as upbeat as the kids dancing to ska records. Some performers elected to retreat into a darkness of doom and death and fantasy. See, the tough economic times facing the empire caused some young people to seek out music that reflected their bleak mood. Yes, there was Joy Division, yes, there was The Cure, but you could go even darker and heavier. This is a taste of Throbbing Gristle, a harsh performance art band who was out to shock. These tenets and ideas began to lay the foundations of what we later call industrial music. And then there was the wave of groups described as gothic, bands that seemed to be raised on a diet of Frankenstein novels and vampire legends and tales of the underworld. Susie and the Banshees, Alien Sex Fiend, Sex Gang Children, The Birthday Party, and of course, Bauhaus. Bauhaus were born in the English Midlands in 1978 and were yet another group to benefit from the emergence of small independent record labels across Britain. Bauhaus was one of the first bands to be tagged with the goth label, thanks mainly to their very first single, a nine and a half minute single dedicated to Bela Lugosi, the Hungarian actor best known for his role as Dracula. Bauhaus and Bela Lugosi's Dead, released on Beggar's Banquet, another one of those small, nimble indie labels that popped up almost daily in post-punk England. Bauhaus's gothic approach would prove to be very popular in the years ahead. Then there was another sound and another movement to which we alluded in Chapter 6. They were rock and roll heretics. They did not believe in using guitars at all. Apostates, heathens, unbelievers. They are next. By the beginning of the 1980s, it was obvious that music in Britain had gone off in all directions at once. This wave of fresh, new talent was unconcerned about being good enough to tear off a Led Zeppelin-style guitar solo. There was the quirkiness of The Cure, the goth of Bauhaus, the harsh industrialness of Throbbing Gristle, the delicacy of Kate Bush's four-octave voice, not to mention the ska revival, and a deepening interest in reggae and rockabilly. The goal was unfettered, unself-conscious self-expression even if it meant forsaking the sacred electric guitar entirely. Let me tell you something, there were more than a few people anxious to do that. Let's pick up a thread from Chapter 6. One of the most important musical developments in the post-punk world was the widespread introduction of the cheap and easy-to-program synthesizer. The roots of electronically generated music go as far back as the Russian Revolution, when a Bolshevik scientist named Leo Theremin introduced a device that used electric currents and magnetic fields to generate sounds. But it wasn't until the mid-1960s that the technology had progressed to the point where it became accessible to everyday musicians. In the 1970s, the sophistication and power of these instruments increased dramatically at the same time prices started to come down. By the late 70s, even the beginner musician could afford one. 
Meanwhile, groups such as Kraftwerk were demonstrating how synthesizer sounds could be used for something other than experimental music and sound effects for planetarium shows. The attraction of the synthesizer was really simple. First of all, here was a device that, theoretically anyway, could generate an infinite number of brand new sounds. And because these sounds were totally artificial, you could make new ones that had never ever been heard by human ears ever. It was fun just to experiment with these sounds, and occasionally these sounds became music. And secondly, and this is a big one, you didn't need a lot of musical skill to play a keyboard synthesizer. You just had to learn how to get it to squawk those cool sounds in a pleasing way. Now this had tremendous appeal to the post-punk generation. Twist a few knobs, and with just one finger on one key, you can do all kinds of things. No strings to break, no strings to go out of tune, no heavy amplifiers to haul around. And if it was now okay for anyone to get up and thrash about with a guitar, wouldn't it even be more radical to thrash away without one? Suddenly, the novice musician could make music like a pro. And if he had one or two other synthesizers and just a little coordination, you could make as much music as a whole band, even in the privacy of your own bedroom. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Daniel Miller, the solitary member of a band known as The Normal from 1978 with Warm Leatherette, a single that became a substantial UK hit that year, and a song that was composed and recorded in Daniel's bedroom. Like a number of young British musicians, Miller had been exposed to craft work and the electronic musings of David Bowie. The concept of stylish, futuristic, machine-generated music, crossed with the do-it-yourself-anything-goes aesthetics of punk rock, appealed to Daniel very much. So he got some gear and recorded Warm Leatherette in his bedroom. And just by putting it for sale on consignment in independent record stores, Daniel sold 30,000 copies. He took the profits and founded his own independent record label devoted entirely to guitar-less music. He called the label Mute. And over the next few years, Mute would introduce the world to more of these techno-pop practitioners, including Depeche Mode and Erasure and Yazoo. Daniel, however, was not alone in thinking that guitars were passe and useless. There was Gary Newman and his two-way army. From up in Industrial Sheffield, we got the Human League. And then there was Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, the band with the most pretentious name in the world. They began as The Id and were formed by Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys in 1977. They started playing in and around Liverpool, especially at a hot club called Eric's. Firmly hooked on the joys of electronics, they renamed themselves VCLXI. That's after a transistor part. In the fall of 1978, they adopted their deliberately pretentious name, and when they played live, McCluskey and Humphreys surrounded themselves with not only synthesizers, but signal generators and oscilloscopes and a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder named Winston. That was a weird sight, even for the supposedly open-minded punk era. But for OMD and others like them, the present sucked. Let's look to a brave new future. In fact, some people call music like this futurist. OMD released their first single in May of 1979. Not only was their music completely electronic, but unlike Kraftwerk, OMD's brand of pop music was upbeat, happy, and dare we say it, hopeful.
As the 80s began, more and more young musicians jumped on the techno-pop bandwagon. Synthesizers continued to become more powerful and also cheaper, and every few months, a new keyboard came on the market which offered the musician more sonic possibilities. But not everyone liked what was going on. Some of these groups met very strong resistance. The Human League, with their arsenal of synthesizers and drum machines and tape-backing vocals, were sometimes booed off stage by audiences who demanded real musicians. And, feeling threatened by this new technology, a chapter of the British Musicians Union filed a motion that would see all synthesizers banned from recording sessions and all live performances. Put musicians out of work. And coincidentally, this motion was filed on May 24, 1982, the 48th birthday of Dr. Robert Mogg, the inventor of the portable keyboard synthesizer. Britain was awash in electronic music in the post-punk era. There was, like I said, the Human League and Gary Newman and OMD, plus bands like Ultravox and Visage and Soft Cell. And Technopop begat several micro-genres of its own, including something called New Romanticism, which ended up giving us Duran Duran and Spando Ballet and ABC. But there was one group who would have none of this. Stephen Patrick Morrissey was both a fan of the New York Dolls and the Sex Pistols. And he was quite distressed at what he considered to be the vacuous state of pop music in the early 1980s. According to Morrissey, music had once again been hijacked by the major record companies. So, teaming up with guitarist Johnny Marr, they formed a band that was dedicated to simple pop principles. Songs featuring lyrics that really had something to say, be it honest teenage angst or perhaps the murder of real-life kidnapped children. Their name was chosen for its simplicity, too. In a world drowning in synthesizer music made by groups with artsy, pretentious names, they just went with The Smiths. The Smiths would end up becoming a huge influence on the entire British music scene, eventually becoming the most influential English indie band of the 80s. We will come back to them. Meanwhile, over in Dublin, another group of Sex Pistols fans were starting to attract attention. Now, if you can imagine our history of alt-rock as a timeline, we're now into the 1980s. But here's our problem. We can no longer chart the history of alt-rock with a nice straight line. More music, more sounds, more approaches, all means more subgenres, sub-subgenres, and even sub-sub-subgenres. This means that for the rest of the series, we'll have to bounce between a bunch of different scenes and sounds, while at the same time trying to keep the threads that hold alt-rock culture all together. We'll spend Chapter 8 in North America looking at what became of New Wave, what other forms of alt-rock evolved, and we'll finally get to figuring out why they call this stuff alternative music. Oh, and someone also came out with this crazy idea of a 24-hour TV channel that showed nothing but short films based around single songs, which is <laughs> just goofy. This is where we're headed in Chapter 8 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.